second win only, your first win in the Grand Tour. What's your feeling right now? Uh, unbelievable. Uh, like my first victory in the Dauphiné, I can't believe it. Uh, such a hard day, actually. Um, yeah, and in the final we were the, with four guys, with two of us, and Tom, yeah, he did a superb job in the, in the last 2K. And yeah, already I felt uh, feeling myself the whole day quite good. And one one time on the climb I had a bit uh, bit troubles, but I came back and I I was actually confident for the sprint, and I'm so happy. Welcome back to the Segmentist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. It is Friday the 13th. Uh oh. No, it's not an uh-oh. It was a good stage today. We, uh, we're, we're catching up about half an hour after the finish of stage seven of the Giro d'Italia. We're going to talk you through what just happened, plus look back a little bit, back at Etna, back at some of the sprints that have happened since our last episode, and then look forward to this weekend and Blockhouse and a real, true GC test that is coming up on Sunday. The audio you heard at the start there was Kuhn Bauman, who just won stage seven. Uh, 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 I hate the term tactical masterclass. It wasn't really that. It was it was the fact that they ended up with two of the four in the finale and Tom Dumoulin showing his class. We'll get into exactly how Kuhn Bauman won that stage in a little bit. But first, let's say hello to our crew today. Dane Cash, how are you? Hello. Doing good. How you doing, Kelly? I'm great. Kit Nicholson, how are you? Welcome back to the Cyclantist Podcast. Kit Davison? Who's that? I said Kit Nicholson. Oh, I thought you said Davison. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did we invite the wrong Kit to this podcast? (laughs) I'm sorry. No, I said Kit Nicholson. I just was, again, caffeinated and speaking way too fast. Maybe I need to, I don't know, clean my ears out, whatever. (laughs) Yep, I'm here. I'm all right. (laughs) Welcome back. Welcome back. And Ronan McLuchlin, how are you? (laughs) <laughs> That's not the worst thing I've ever been called. <laughs> I just thought I'd keep running with it here. I swear to God, I said Kit Nicholson. What did I, I say? I heard Nicholson. Yeah. Oh, heard yeah. Well, now yeah. I'm embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back, everybody. We're here in the podcast, and before we go anywhere, we do have to hear from Shadi, who's not on the pod today, but brings us news from the Whoop. Break it down, Shadi. Here we go, advert time, people, because today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Throughout the Giro d'Italia, Whoop is partnering with EF Pro Cycling and Velon to give cycling fans a behind-the-scenes look at what riders' live heart rates are doing during the race, along with everything off the bike, including recovery, training and sleep data over the course of a Grand Tour. Whoop isn't just for the professionals, though. Whether you're an avid cyclist or just getting started, Whoop is there to help you understand your body better. It's not just another fitness tracker. Whoop measures loads of data and provides you with personalised recommendations and feedback so that you can accomplish your goals. Now, I've not got any personalised testimony here because I haven't got one wrapped around my wrist, but I would absolutely love to know how my um, performance is affected by the terrible sleep I get due to having two small little people wake me up throughout the night. Now, if you are wanting to know how another northern person is getting on who has got a whoop wrapped around his wrist, then go and check out EF rider Hugh Carthy's data online because he is riding the Giro. Anyway, they have just released an all-new 4.0. It's a smaller and smarter design with new biometric tracking. You can get yours today by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And when you enter the code TIPS, I'll repeat that again for those that haven't understood it. For those that haven't understood me correctly, that's T-I-P-S. At checkout, you'll receive a massive 15% off. Thank you to Shoddy and thank you to Whoop for sponsoring today's episode. Let's get into the Giro. Stage seven was today. We're going to start there and, like I said, then then go backwards, then go forwards. But let's start with stage seven. Uh, we said on the episode that we recorded on Monday that this is going to be a breakaway day, and so it proved to be. Dane, give me a give me a little synopsis. What what went down today? A lot of things went down. Try to be brief. Uh, 
Oh yeah, I would say a lot of things went down in the battle for the stage, and not a lot of things went down otherwise. Uh, it was a fun battle for the stage, which was really, I mean, they were they were battling to get into the breakaway for a while in the beginning of the of the day, which was not surprising. Uh, if you look at this profile, it just looked like the kind of day where it was pretty clearly going to go to the break. Uh, and so there was a big fight to get into it, and and uh, eventually break was established, uh, and it was a good one with some big names up there, including Tom Dumoulin, um, Davide Formolo, Balcom Olama, and obviously Kuhn Bauman. Uh, those four riders survived to the end of the day to battle for the stage win. They actually didn't get as big of a lead as I thought they were going to get, uh, but I think that was because uh, Dumoulin being in the group inspired the peloton to take it a little more cautiously uh and and they did so it was a five minute gap for a while there and and uh brought it down even more uh, and yeah but they still fought with the stage win i mean trek literally just they basically gave him almost the exact amount exact amount of time that the first place rider in the breakaway would need to take the Maglirosa and just stop them there <laughs> yep. which Makes sense, right? Like, they successfully defended the Magliarosa yet another day. I mean, Juanpe Lopez was, uh, on paper anyway, a pretty good fit for today's stage. And I think they were confident that they'd come away with that pink jersey. But the the tactics there were were interesting uh, because they 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 ended up sticking Pacamolma in the breakaway. And that sort of had an effect all over the place today. Uh, my, my one thought on that is, it was a good tactical move if you accept that Trek uh, has to shoulder the burden of chasing, I guess. Which, I, it's weird to me that teams do this. Like, the, the team that's expected to chase does so, whether they need to or not. It's like, oh, the Peloton wants me to chase. You know, the, oh, we have the jersey, I guess. We, I, I, don't, I don't really get why teams do that. I mean, I get it. It's tradition. But you would think that, Somebody would have figured out by now that maybe that's not always the best thing to do. In any case, I don't. Most teams will do it. So Trek today, yes, they had a you know whatever you want to call it an excuse not to chase. I think they always have that excuse. You don't have to chase. Why? Anyway, rant over. I, th- I think it actually worked out in their favor today, though. In that you know, watching the stage from the very start, as uh, Johnny Long mentioned, that I do quite often in his article yesterday, uh, Malma was like one of the only writers who made the breakaway who was invisible for the first 60 kilometers and it took about 60k for the break to go but he was just you know i think he was just so he's so much experience knows how to get in the move he was waiting until the right moment before that we've seen lopez actually following moves from leonard camden that sort of defending his own pink jersey why you know why the team weren't riding but once malama then got himself into that move and trek put themselves on the front to defend the jersey malama's then immediately got that excuse that Okay, they spoke about there to sit on the the break, which leaves him with fresher legs coming into the finale. Double that up with the fact that he was so smart in the opening phase of the race, he theoretically should have been coming into that final phase of the race with the freshest legs in in the breakaway. Which, you know, I kind of thought, you know, I I really had despite having so many or despite having two Jumbo Visma riders, I really thought Malama was the rider to watch in the finale for that reason. I'm I'm glad you got to say that on the podcast because I know that him not winning kind of took the wind out of your sails for a potential analysis <laughs> on the website, which would have been good. Uh, but at least you got to say it here. I'm glad. Yes, took the wind you. out of my sails. Took the wind out of my sails in the in the segment tips fantasy competition, which we must provide a brief update. Well, today's stage hasn't been loaded in yet, yeah, so we, we don't, don't actually know. Yeah, we don't know. I picked I picked none other than Boca Molima today. So I don't really know how far I'll move up, but I was 118th out of 123. That's quite a few points that you're going to get with most people probably not getting any. So that I mean that's a, that's a nice one. I I, I picked could maybe Malama shoot also, for the 60s so I, or 70s. I checked a lot of people. I think he was the second most picked writer for today. We're unlikely yeah. to move up too far. <laughs> we're 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 not doing great. The, the real question though, because as we said before, uh, whoever wins this thing gets their own ad from our own Shoddy Dave currently in the hot seat for the shoddy dave ad is landsvik i think it's a norwegian flag there with 72 points where are you at dane at the moment 19th place with 57 points 19th place and i'll still be at 57 points at the end of the day when things get uploaded so i think i'm gonna probably mm. drop down a little bit 
Uh-oh. Yeah. I can't remember if we said that everybody that beats you gets an ad because that might that might end. <laughs> well, last year, last year it was if you beat me, you got my job. But I think like a thousand people would have a job we, if that was We case. could do it that everybody who beats Dane gets one line of an ad and without <laughs> talking to each other. We, be a we long put ad. together whatever comes in. That could be a long ad. One word. You, you get to you get to send us one word that we must include in in the ad. No, I think the winner. The winner gets the winner gets the shoddy ad. That's that's how we're gonna go. Anyway, that's where we are at the moment. We'll update you again on Monday with uh, <laughs> how last I am and and where Dane currently lies. Let's return back to to Trek and their sort of tactics today. Kit, you had something again. It's a, a what if there was one version of this conversation if. The GC riders had not been boring, um, or if Leonard Kamler and his Bora Hansgrohe teammates had thought, "Let's get that pink jersey," because then I think Lopez might have been a little bit understaffed, um, and, and would in that finale have really valued Molima. But as it happened, it was all fine because the GC riders thought, "Nah, let's wait till Sunday." Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that's a good point in that Molima really had had a couple different purposes up the road, right? If if they had to call him back to, to maintain the Magliarosa, then they, they could have done that. And he probably would have been extremely valuable in that particular role. As it was, like you said, the, the, the GC favorites, they didn't do much. Richard Carapaz attacked with Matthew Vanderpool at one point. Unclear why. Really early, really there's boring, a, stupid. Why? <laughs> yeah. There, there's why? a lot of talk about this, but I, I don't think he actually attacked it. It was a long, not a long descent, but it was a technical enough descent with a lot of fog at the top and i think they just found themselves clear we didn't see the move go clear i think they just found themselves clear of the peloton you know through keeping themselves at the front maybe pushing the pace a bit just to see what happened i, I don't think it was an actual attack really like it was yeah they tried to was, make it, was, it one when the peloton was gaining Narvaez was kind of like come on guys let's keep going <laughs> on the front of that little group but yeah i mean i think this probably happens a lot with matthew vanderpool on his group rides with friends where like, he's not actually attacking, <laughs> but he just leaves everybody behind on accident. And then people say, Hey, Matthew, maybe. So, yeah. Yeah. I wonder who Matthew rides with. Who are Matthew's friends? I don't know. We should find out. I want to talk about Tom Dumoulin today. He, he picked himself up after a pretty rough day on Mount Etna. He, he lost what, nine minutes or so on Mount Etna, effectively ending his, his GC ambitions. And, I guess he pulled some time back today, but he's still he's, he's not really in the GC fight, GC battle. But the, the thing for me that, that was really it was good to see, and I think shows how classy a rider he is. I mean, given this guy's Palmaris, given everything that he's done, he really, in the in the last 30K, he laid himself entirely on the line for Bauman. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, you're talking about a young rider. They they were pretty sure that he was the, the had the strongest kick of anybody in that group. And so it is sort of logically, it makes sense for... Dumoulin to to lay himself on the line like that but the sort of traditional hierarchy of cycling it, it's much more likely that the younger rider would then would, would, would work for the older one the more established one right and so I do think it was a classy it was a classy thing and also a very just sort of pragmatic decision to to stick Dumoulin in the front you know he was dropped at one point on the sort of final rise or I guess penultimate rise because the the actual finish was upper rise the penult, penultimate rise into the finish clawed his way back absolutely clawed his way back when he could have just he could have just pulled the parachute right he could have been like ah that's it for me i did i did my job i did my work clawed himself back pulled a lead out and really set up bauman for the stage victory so just a a a a a pretty excellent way to pick himself up after what must have been a a really just a bummer of a day on Mount Edna. I mean, the, the vibes on the bus that, that night must have been pretty bad, and this is a good way to turn it around. At what point do we think he actually committed to working for Bowman, though? Because the one moment of the whole stage where Bowman looked like he was completely out of it was when Dumoulin attacked from the back of a four-man group when his teammate Bowman was on the front, and then distanced Bowman only to be countered by Formolo and then have to chase Formolo, leaving Bowman again off the back on his own and he somehow clawed his way back he actually took maximum points over the top of that same climb it was you know from a position where everybody thought he was out of it so i think it was you know if if he did decide to ride for bowman it was only after that point where he thought all his own chances were gone yeah i think that's probably true i think when they arrived into that finish as a group with the the very high likelihood of a sprint then it became clear that uh this wasn't going to be really dumoulin's kind of day 
not that he's bad at sprinting necessarily, but I think it was it was at that point that it was sort of a switch, and then and he really quickly did slide into that role. I wonder actually if it was a, it was part of the plan it was all for Bauman because he said uh, that he was targeting the stage. Bauman had been looking at the stage as one that he wanted to try for. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, obviously there was a lot of attacking. It looked a bit like infighting towards the end, but I I'm a little doubtful that it wasn't that he wasn't there in a team role. I mean, even when Dumoulin first bridged across to the group, he looked kind of hesitant in the first couple moments. Uh, I think he was crossing with with uh, what Camargo, the, the EF rider, who kind of like, you know, flicked the elbow and, and tried to get him through. And Dumoulin was like, ah, nah, and then realized that they had a bit of a gap and, and put, you know, put the hammer down and helped them get across. So I'm not, I, I think Kuhn Bauman know, knew exactly what he was doing. I'm not sure Tom Dumoulin knew exactly what he's doing the entire time. Like you say, like att- attacking, attacking when your teammates on the front is just sort of like bike racing 101. Maybe don't do that. Like wait for Formula to, 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 to take a nice pull so that you can potentially get rid of one of your opponents instead of one of your teammates. So not a tactical masterclass uh, to, to use the term that we don't like very much. Not that for much of the stage. But like I said... The, the the moment that he was dropped and then clawed his way back and then immediately hit the front like that for me the actual finale he clearly was was then at that point all in for Bauman and I think that that's commendable particularly the clawing back part is it not a a, a uh, I think we see it quite often in the classics I, I was reminded of Quickstep um, a little bit in you know Quickstep in their prime anyway that having a rider on the front. I was reminded of Caspar Asgreen's E3 a few years ago when he was away for 60 kilometers or something and then sat on the back in a group with two of his teammates and they were sat on the front when he attacked from the back and they just pulled the brakes on. So I did so I, there was that moment when I thought ah so these he's, he's trying to make Mollema and he's, he's there's more space between Mollema and Formula and the front but then again yeah if if Bowen can't hold the wheel when they jump across, he's stuck between the next attacker, which was Molo or, or Formolo, and his teammate, and it's suddenly screech. Yeah, and it works slightly differently on a on a on a relatively steep climb than on an E three kind of you know where the draft is not so important and all the rest. And yeah, just a bit of a bit of a weird one. But uh, I mean, if if it if it had worked, and Tom, the only way Tom Dumoulin was winning that stage is if he went alone. Really, if it had worked, then we'd been like, oh wow, that was great, you know. Yeah, and if it had worked, <laughs> and and Dumoulin does go clear, even if he doesn't win the stage, if Bowman's not dropped, it gives him the opportunity to sit on the other two, which you know plays into his hands for winning the stage. But just on Bowman, even if we just change the subject for a second, like I, th- I think he's incredibly not lucky that he won the stage, but lucky that he won the stage because otherwise he was in for a good telling off when he got on the bus stage because he did a lot of he did a lot of things in the break today where I thought he you know he had the best legs but he had you know he sort of just told everybody else in the break I am the rider to watch today I have the strongest legs I'm going to take the points on every climb and when I want to go back to the car I'm just going to go way back into the cars I'm not even going to wait for the car to come off me because I have such good legs and then when he was dropped in that climb I was like uh-oh, you're in trouble now. <laughs> but, you know, it's all's well that ends well, I guess. Needs to take a leaf out of Bakamolama's book where you just look like you're on the ragged edge the entire day, <laughs> even though clearly he was feeling okay, right? I mean, you know, finishes second uh, against somebody who's a much better sprinter than him. So the actual finale there, not too surprising, but him and, and, and was it Camargo that the, oh, I'm not super familiar with the EF rider, the Colombian, I believe, um, who just looks not great <laughs> on a bicycle, just a lot of, a lot of shoulder movement, a lot of head movement, but, but then, you know, gets dropped, comes back, gets dropped. Comes, you can't actually tell how he's feeling. Cause he just looks like he's about to get popped from, from minute one, basically. Formula two always, Looks like he's trying to hold a baguette in his mouth while he's climbing. While he's climbing, he looks just around like, a lot too. Yeah, he, he Formula looks- did an he did an insane ride today. Like he was on the attack from you know from from the first time the road went upwards, and he spent a large proportion of the time on his own as well, uh, solo off the front riding. Can't remember who it was somebody from Movie Star just rode him straight off the wheel, and still was there in the finale. Like he was. 
you know, if, if anybody hasn't picked him for today in the in the fantasy competition, save him for the next day like today because he has the legs to want to stay in this race. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of there's a lot of there's actually quite a few breakaway stages coming up. There's also we'll get to this at the end of the show. A bunch of these kind of weird sort of hard finishes, like vendor pole finishes coming up in the next in the next couple of days. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's get into let's 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 wind back the dials a little bit. Our last podcast was on Monday. It was just ahead of the Mount Etna stage, so we haven't actually had a chance to talk about that yet. I want to go all the way back to to Mount Etna. Dane, what happened on Mount Etna? Some uh, so a m- more weird Ineos stuff and a breakaway. And the the dashing of Yumbo Visma's GC hopes, which you've already kind of touched on, but it was I would say that that was the biggest part of the day for me was seeing that Tom Dumoulin was not there. Uh, but obviously they've redeemed themselves a little bit. Um, and yeah, strange. Uh, in the, so R- Richie Port said before the race that uh, if the team needed to bring back the old Sky Train, that they would, which was a great quote. Uh, I really liked it that he said that because it made me chuckle. And then they went and did it on a stage where they really didn't need to do it. It didn't seem necessary. And this is actually some of we've, we've kind of seen them doing that a little bit over the past few years. It, it had seemed, though, I think. It seemed like they'd figured it out. Like, they, oh, we don't have to do this anymore. Uh, like, uh, I don't know. Last year, I, I felt like they'd kind of gotten away from wastefully pulling out the train tactics. And then here they were again. I, I don't really know what they achieved other than dropping their own guy, Pavel Sivakov. Um, and at the end of the day, the GC battle was basically there was like there wasn't one. I mean, it was it was guys losing time. It was, you know, Tom Dumoulin losing a ton of time. Um, Vincenzo Nibali losing time, people that you weren't, well, other than Dubalon, uh, riders mostly that I don't, I don't think had that much of a chance, but there wasn't a whole lot of GC action and it was just seemed like a, a waste of, of Pavel Zivakov. And I think the reality is Tom Dumoulin would have been dropped anyway. Right. Right. Like exactly. if you lose, if you lose nine minutes or well, he lost like what, seven to the GC group, if you lose seven minutes, you were not feeling it. And he got dropped so early. I mean, he got dropped when there was like 40 people left in that group. Right. Like, it didn't need any else to turn the screws and. It's just a very strange, very strange maneuver. I don't, I don't really, you know, there's, there's been sort of a lot of chatter about why they're doing it and no one has a good answer and Ineos isn't really telling us. And, and one of the, one of the sort of theories chucked around there is they just think that Carapaz does better with a really hard Giro basically. And so they're just going to kind of like make sure that there are fewer, easier rest day type days. I'm not sure I fully buy that because then they go like, who cares how hard Etna was? when the next stage was as Vanderpool put it the easiest race he's ever done like the, the, there's no point in trying to put some fatigue into into Simon Yates's legs on Etna if you got the if you <laughs> the world's easiest stage of the next day so I don't, I don't none of it makes sense to me I, I you know maybe they'll look like geniuses at the end of this race when Richard Carapaz wins by three minutes but I I don't see it at the moment given Given that there is so little high 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 altitude in this year's race, that sort of theory makes sense to me that they want to make it harder for Carapaz and take every opportunity. But would it not be harder if you've got the likes of Sivakov and Port going on the attack on Edna instead of riding a steady pace into a headwind? So that's my big problem with it. <laughs> I feel like they've done this in the past. I thought they'd gotten away from it. I thought they'd figured it out. But I feel like the biggest asset that they have is, is the ability to send guys up the road like that. Uh, and they don't do it. And it's very frustrating. I, th- I think their biggest asset they have is sitting at home at the moment. And that is Cervez Canavan, Roger Hammond, Kurt Bogarts, the Classics staff, who really transformed the way the team race in the Classics this year. Uh, and now they're back to the GC, GC directors. And it's really no surprise we've fallen back into the same way of racing. Like the, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of talk as well about how often they've won the Giro in the past few years. But you know, last year they won it with the best rider, uh, Bernal. But the year before they won it with Theo Kagenhart by being aggressive, which is what everybody wants to see them doing, and which is the approach that that classic sort of setup took into the classics this year, and we're so successful with. So. Johnny did a story based off that Richie Port quote, right? That was basically, well, the headline is, hold your loved ones close. The Ineos train has returned to the Giro d'Italia, which I think is how we all kind of feel about it. 
So I, I tweeted this with, with, with something along the lines of like, you know, my worst Jiro fears confirmed or something like that. Very tongue in cheek. Uh, Brian Nygaard tweeted back at me. If you actually believe some of the quotes in here, what, what are you worried about? Because one of the key quotes that Johnny used is from Sean Kelly. And it's, they've been riding, they've been c- controlling the race, they've done nothing, and they've got nothing out of it. I know they've got rid of some of the big favorites, but I think that would have happened anyway. Now, the sort of point that I think Brian was making is that if I am actually concerned about the Ineos train and them dominating this race, the display on Aetna should actually make me feel a little bit better because they tried to do that and they did do that, but they also dropped Sivakov and were left with only Richie Port with Richard Carapaz, right? So like clearly this team in past years with that kind of effort on that kind of climb, we would have seen six of them come across the finish line together, right? And instead we saw two. So maybe, maybe it's even though we're sort of sitting here, this is cause for concern from a, an entertaining race standpoint, maybe it's also indicative of a team that isn't quite as strong as they think they are. And I think that that was one of the kind of side takeaways for me out of Aetna is that they tried to do the Ineos train thing and they did do it on mountain stage number one, but they did not finish it the way that you would normally expect them to. And to me, that's sort of, you know, a little, little crack in the armor there, uh, more so than anything. Uh, credit to Sean Kelly. Uh, he did not pull any punches on that broadcast. He was very critical, uh, and I was uh, kind of enjoying it. It was he, he was he was not happy with it. it. Just reminds me of Movistar, Movistar in the Ineos train era, which we all scoffed at, and now we're kind of scoffing at Ineos train era again. <laughs> Uh, as long as they don't try a, a trident. I would love whatever. for them to try a <laughs> fork or any number of many-pronged <laughs> attacks. It's more exciting that way. Uh, yeah, anyway, that was that was sort of my that's my final thought on that Ineos thing. Is Yes, I don't want to see an Ineos train take control of this Giro. However, maybe what Aetna actually showed us was that they can't. And that makes me feel a little bit better about the coming weeks of this bike race. Could be wrong. But I wouldn't say that the, that the display on Aetna was that commanding, right? Came across the line with a pretty big group and only two of their own guys. That's not particularly impressive to me. Moving on to the sprinters and a pair of sprint stages in between Aetna and today. Dane, talk me through them. Yeah, we saw a little bit of a restructuring at the top of the, of the sprint hierarchy. Uh, Arnaud Demar came away with two stage wins and they were both interesting in that the first one was sort of a uh, not that many well okay Caleb Ewan and, and Mark Cavendish weren't there so it was hard to say what 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 uh, we could take away from that other than that good on Demar for surviving the day I mean it was a tough climb in the beginning uh, and Demar Fernando Gaviria and uh, Giacomo Nizzolo were among the survivors. They finished in that order. Uh, good on DeMar for taking the win there. Uh, but other than that, I don't know that we could t- draw that many conclusions out of it. The next day, I think we could draw some conclusions out because he won again. And this time, Cav and Ewan were both there. Uh, and that was a really interesting one. Uh, the stage for, let's say, 95% of the day was not particularly interesting. Uh, but the last 5% was great. Uh, it was like Milan San Remo uh, in that way. And <laughs> gener- I think you're being generous there, to be honest. Last 2% maybe? Uh, uh, we need Johnny here to defend defend the nothingness. Yeah. <laughs> <So> we- <laughs> there, really, there really wasn't a whole lot going on. Uh, but in the very, very, very end, it was a, it was a great sprint battle. Uh, we saw – actually, one of the things I really liked about this Stage 6 sprint was that we saw so many sprint trains come to the front in the last – kilometer 900 meters 900 meters uh and all of a sudden you've got multiple well-staffed leadouts vying for position and groupama was the one that really took the lead and kind of flexed their strength and we don't we don't really talk about groupama's lead out very often but i think they did a great job uh on stage six to bring arna demar into a good position they showed that they they have a really strong lead out a well-marshaled lead out talented guys uh and and then there was some chaos when uh, Kofidis Rider uh, 
uh, pulled off for the uh, the front of their train and right into the quick step uh, pathway. And uh, unfortunately, that that dropped a uh, quick step rider out of the out of the picture. And all of a sudden, Mark Cavendish, who had up to that point looked like he was having a good lead out, uh, now he had one fewer rider and some ground to make up. Uh, and Michael Morcow did a great job of of getting him back into position. Uh, but with one fewer rider and, uh, you know, some energy expended, things were pretty different than they might have otherwise been. Uh, while all this is going on, by the way, Fernando Gaviria shouldered Case Bowl, got relegated for it. Uh, he banged his handlebars because he was unhappy that he had missed out on another opportunity. I don't think it's going very well for, for Fernando right now. Uh, the, the, the Gaviria one's interesting to me, right? Because, they're, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the UCI, they 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 punish outcomes, Generally, you know, Arnaud Demar also made a pretty dramatic lane change right in the finale. And if if Germay had been a couple inches further forward, would have had his front wheel swept out, and we would have had a mass pileup, right? And we we probably would have seen Demar relegated. So it, it's it's a sort of weird. I don't I don't I don't envy the commissaires in these sort of situations. I, I thought the the Gaviria thing was interesting because he kind of swings right. And for me, it all depends whether he should get relegated or not. All depends on which side of who who is Case Bowl's lead out guy. Do you know? Dainese. Was it Dainese? Which side of Dainese's rear wheel was Gaviria's front wheel? Because if it was on the right side, as Dainese came to the right, Gaviria basically had no choice but to follow him right into Case Bowl, right? Whereas if his front wheel is on the left side, he leaned into Case Bowl in, in order to try to make a gap. So it, it, there's, there's sort of two completely different, essentially whether Gaviria is at fault for that particular maneuver entirely depends on exactly where his front wheel was in that space. I think regardless, he was essentially shooting a gap that didn't really exist. It, it sort of reeked of, of desperation at that point in time. And that might've been part of the reason why they, why they pulled the relegation card. But for me, like that could have gone, that could have really gone either direction because you could very much argue again, I, you can't tell from the, t- from the TV shot, at least I couldn't, but you could argue that essentially he was pushed right into case bowl by Dainese's rear wheel. And, and frankly was, was, was quite impressive in keeping it upright or, it was the margie bargy that he shouldn't have been doing. And it's, it's really hard to tell from the TV shot. I think Gaviria's mistake is just right before that because where the whole incident happens, it's on like a sweeping bend just coming into the final straight. And Gaviria is from, uh, just watching the video here now again, Gaviria is perfectly positioned behind uh, the, the DSM rider. And instead of taking the shortest line to the finish, which is to cut the corner, he goes to go around the DSM rider on the outside, which leaves him in the position that clearly the DSM leader writer is going to have to pull off into. And that's what sets up the situation where he then gets, you know, basically cornered or snookered into getting stuck between the two DSM writers. That's actually a really good point. And that, that, that the curve of that finale is also, you could, you could say is the reason why quick step should have known that that Kofidis rider was going to swing off to the right. Right. Like they so they were kind of in the wrong place and it, and it, ma- it made it that Groupama was really the one in the driver's seat, which ended up being the case anyway. But they were essentially in the right spot because we had two lead out trains, one going left, one going right. And quick step trying to kind of come up the middle. If if they had adequately thought about that finale and thought about which direction the lead out guys were going to probably be peeling off into, they would know that they were in the, essentially the line of fire of guys coming straight backwards at them and sort of the the author of their own demise at that point. I don't know. I see it a little bit differently in that where the DSM rider pulls off, it's on a sweeping bend and any sprinter, you know, truly going for the win on that stage is taking the racing line through that corner. There is nowhere else that sprinter wants to be. If they're on the outside, they're out of the race because it's the longest way to the finish line. Whereas where David Chimelai pulls across and um, basically disrupts the, the quick step lead out, it's much further away from the finish. And not only does he like, you, you you have to as a lead out rider you have to pull off the front uh you know to 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 free up the rider behind you to come through but you do it in a controlled manner and you know that is what the DSM rider did he did it in a controlled manner where he was expected to go what Chimelai did he came from one side of the road across the white line and you know straight across the quick step lead out train and not only that but he actually checked like two or three times 
where the other trains were. He looked behind him. He knew it was as if he knew exactly what he was doing. If you watch, you know, for later in the finale, you can see um, <clears throat> Michael Morku. He does the same thing. He 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 swings to his left. It's after the bend in the road, but he swings to his left, knowingly interrupting the the Francis de Jules lead out train, but does it in a way that's acceptable. What Chimelai did, you know, it, it was just. It was it was much more obvious. It was much more dangerous. You know, he, he crossed most of the road to to get in the way of the quick step train, and it really did. I think it was the biggest influence on the whole sprint. What what Chimelai did there. I'm just saying that I think that quick step should have seen it coming. That that guys were because it was it was just before the bend. Like you know, he's looking forward. He could see that the, that the the road was about to turn. He was going to go that direction. There was always going to go that direction because he actually at that point couldn't go left. There was an entire. Francis Ajou train in the way. And so essentially, I'm not saying that Chimelai was essentially right in this. I'm just saying that Quick Step essentially was not positioned properly. If they were if they were positioned properly, they would have been on the far left side of the road. They would have taken that spot that Groupama was in, which is really just credit to Groupama for winning the kind of initial lead out battle. Uh, you know, Quick Step, luckily for for Cavendish, Morco is is incredible and was still almost able to save it. But I think that they they kind of they kind of screwed up which part of the road they'd want to be on coming into that corner. And then they got chimelied. So what are you, what are you going to do? I think a lot of times you see lead out trains go too early. Uh, and that's one of the, one of the, one of the things that I think very often leads to sprinters getting swamped at the line is when their lead out drops them off too early. It's like worse than not having a lead out at all. Uh, and I thought that group got to the front actually pretty early in that finale from 900 meters to go, but they had the, they had the firepower. They had the numbers. Uh, they still had three riders with 900 meters to go, and they still had two riders in front with 800 meters to go, and that meant they could afford to push to the front and get themselves out of the situation that Quick Step found themselves in, which was being, in, as, as you said, kind of in the line of fire, uh, and that that was the problem. I, I, whether or not Chimelai, you know, did something wrong, I, I, and it kind of doesn't really matter if you're Groupama, right? That. They, they don't have to worry about it. And and that's that was the mistake, I guess, that Quick Step made. Because there's really no recourse. Even if you relegate Chimelai for something like that, it's not like Quick Step gets to win. He, they still don't win. It, it, the, the way that you win is by avoiding that entirely. The the big difference between that finale and stage three, and, and we mentioned on the podcast Monday, was Quick Step were perfectly positioned. Coming onto the kilometer to go, uh, Kate, they had three riders in front of Cavendish right at the front of the bunch. This time they still had three riders in front of Cavendish, but they were coming from further back. And, you know, then they, you know, the, it's, I don't, I don't know if they got blocked in or what happened before that, but they did arrive and they were they were always going to arrive in position later and it would have worked out okay had Chimlai not gotten away. But the biggest difference this time is that coming through the kilometre to go, the exact same point in the sprint, Grubama FTJ had three riders in front of Damar and, you know that that is exactly what you said there, Dane. That is the difference. They you know they dropped them off perfectly, and that kept them out of trouble. Whereas Quickstep were slightly out of position this time, and that got them into trouble. Although Kaylee did point out, I mean, Morkow did a un, unreal job of getting Cavendish still back to the front, with, and he really like moved up really quickly too, uh, with about I don't know two two fifty three hundred meters to go, and all of a sudden Cavs at the front again. Uh, and it looks to me like DeMar was suddenly in a bad spot because, as you pointed out, Ronan, uh, Morkel pull, pulled off in, in, a, in a way that suddenly DeMar has to weave through traffic, and he did. And that was, that, to me, that was the other, another like, kind of key moment was DeMar finding a way to still get through that traffic. Ewan was right on Cavendish's wheel, which was smart of him, uh, but DeMar then jumped on Ewan's wheel, and it's, it's really great. You can see in the overhead shot... Uh, Benyam Gramai is right next to, he, he's to the right of Demar. Uh, Demar gets on Ewan's wheel and Benyam Gramai doesn't. So Benyam Gramai suddenly has wind in his face and the overhead, it makes it quite clear. It's, it's as Demar, as everybody gets up to speed, Gramai starts to fade, uh, because he's in the wind and Demar, he stayed, he stayed hidden from the wind longer than I've seen in a long time. He only came around in the last 50 meters and just did an incredible job of surfing the wheels and, and just being in the right spot until the last possible moment. And then he just exploded around fresh because everybody else had been in the wind for just a little bit longer. And and I think DeMar is going to take a serious amount of confidence from that win because if you pause that finish with 50 or 100 meters to go and DeMar is on Caleb Ewan's wheel, 
nobody on this planet is going to say that Demar will come around Caleb Ewan, you know, based on the last couple of years of sprinting. But he, you know, not only, yes, it was there was a millimeter in it, but, you know, sprinters thrive on confidence and they love winning, but they love beating other sprinters even more. So I think this is a, this might not be the last one we see for Demar this year. Uh, Caleb Ewan's Instagram post is funny, which he just put up a photo of the, of the sprint finish and said, I need some longer arms, <laughs> which is kind of true. Uh, I don't know if we could read Luke Rose post underneath that on, on podcast. It's kind of inappropriate, but it's, <laughs> it's also hilarious. If I'll, I'll leave it for people to go find, go find Caleb Ewan's, uh, Instagram post. Should I read we'll it? it uh, Luke Rowe. <clears throat> <laughs> crazy how you lost by the length of your penis uh, is, is, what, is what he wrote underneath and as a juvenile person I found that hilarious uh, <laughs> I don't know whether we should include that or not <laughs> it's kind of funny leave it in there alright well I want to move forward I want to I look forward a bit um, related to what we were just talking about there, there was some other news from, from today uh, Michael Merku did not start or did not finish. Did, did he start the race? Anyway, he's out of the Giro. Uh, and this is obviously a, a huge, huge blow for Mark Cavendish's chances over the next week or so. There are a number of sprint stages coming up and to lose well, that rider in particular, to lose Mark Borku in particular is just, it's, it's difficult to see. I think I think Cavendish essentially after after you know his early stage win goes from a, a pretty sure bet up next to maybe Caleb Ewan and now Arno Demar to uh, somewhat questionable because I'm I'm not sure that Cav has what he used to have in terms of you know uh, ability to make up for a less than stellar lead out um, could be wrong about that but it's never a good thing I mean uh, I think Van Lerberger is probably going to be his last man now he was the second to last man before so we'll see maybe maybe he can. Maybe he can do what Morka did, but I mean, Morka's the best. He's the best lead-up man in the world right now, so losing him is huge. He he wasn't going to be at the Giro. Morka, well, supposedly they they were get, only going to send him to the Tour. Um, but also, we did see Cav sprint for about three hundred miles on Sunday or whatever, whichever stage it was. So he does. I, yeah, he, I I'm not too worried that obviously Morka will not being there cuts his chances, but I. I uh, yeah, as he wasn't meant to be going. I I don't know. I I I think I think there's a good chance for Cav still, and he's obviously on some f- really really flying form. Yeah, he's, Cav is one of those riders who you know he can win from a leader as we've seen him do so many times, but he can also find his way to the finish line without without a lead out. And I, yeah, I I don't know. I, I'm I do think losing Morkov is going to affect his chances, but at the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if he went and won every sprint stage remaining. It's you know, it's just it's just so hard to call, and and those three sprinters especially are so evenly matched at the moment. Ewan seems to have recovered from his crash. Demar is flying and has the confidence now, and Cavendish is just Cavendish, and you know you can you can you can never count them in. So you you're never really or count them out. Sorry, you can never count them out. <laughs> Big difference there. Uh, so yeah, it's it, you wouldn't be surprised if either, any of those three sprinters took all the remaining sprint stages in this race. And Demar has the advantage of not being in France. <laughs> <laughs> he apparently hates racing in France, so uh, not really. But he he's what he's in seven, six or seven Giro stages now. Seven Giro stages he, he winning us, which is an Americanism. Yeah. Apparently, I don't really know what other people say when they mean winning us, but. Uh, French rider in Giro history. Huh. Yeah. So seven Giro stages plus obviously a Milan San Remo and yeah, dude dude likes racing in Italy, clearly. Let's move on to what's coming up this weekend. Uh so Saturday and then Sunday, Dane, Sunday's the big one. But let's talk let's talk through the weekend. Yes, what is coming up this weekend is an interesting stage, as Matt Denif calls it in his breakdown of the of the route uh and i think it's a really good way of describing stage eight it's there's some laps on a circuit uh and it's not easy it's a it's a bunch of small climbs over and over and over again um in naples and it's kind of a cool little stage i'm i'm thinking it's going to be a tough one to predict because i 
I don't know that all the sprinters are going to make it uh, with, with all the kind of repeated climbing throughout the day. None of, none of the climbs is hard. Um, there's like, there's a like cat four, I think, and that's it. But over the course of the day, it's going to, it's going to add up. Uh, and so this could be more of a, of a kind of a Grimai Vanderpool, maybe Ewan kind of day. Uh, but you know, Hey, maybe, maybe Cav makes it Gaviria. Who, who knows? And then maybe a breakaway goes, it, it's, it's a cool one though. I, I, I think it should be, uh, entertaining from a, an unpredictability perspective. Although I'm a little hesitant to predict that any stage is going to be entertaining after the snooze fest that we saw earlier this week. Well, it's, it's laps, right? It's laps in, in, in and around Napoli. And, and so the, you know, they'll get to see the same thing numerous times, which I think can sometimes uh, add confidence to folks who want to get off the front. They know exactly what's coming up. They've seen it last last lap. They can kind of pick their spot and go for it. So I'm I'm hopeful for an entertaining stage tomorrow. Yeah, it looks like a stage that's designed for a classic specialist. Totally. Should be good for fans, at the, at the very least. A, a kind of a cool spectacle for people in Naples, uh, getting, that, getting to watch it go by so many times. Uh, I think th- those are always really fun. Uh, races to watch as a roadside spectator it's not often we get a grand tour stage with a f- you know local laps like that and, and the finish and i think the climb is like 1.7 kilometer 1.8 kilometers with the seven percent average gradient and they do it five or six times in the finale so it's you know it's it's definitely it's going to be punchy it's going to be exciting and you know just not really having that sort of finish in a grand tour could well shake things up a little bit tomorrow like it's it's nothing the riders won't be used to there's so many races finish with local app but it's just it's not the normal for a grand tour it's also going to put a little bit of fatigue into the legs not not a lot i mean it's not super hard uh but ahead of the sunday stage which should be i hope and i think all the gc riders are expecting it to be a big gc throwdown uh on the climb to blockhouse although there's a cat one climb first which is not easy either uh, so that's going to be a, a really tough finale on the day. So stage nine, they're going to, there's a little bit of climbing early, uh, and then there's a pretty tough cat one, a descent, and then the sort of stair-step steep ascent that is the blockhouse climb. And I think that's going to be, hopefully, it's going to be a day where we're really going to see some GC action and maybe some of the, the fun that Aetna didn't quite deliver in the kind of GC action department. Yeah, we never really talked about the GC today friday stage seven but they really just sort of wrote it in didn't they i mean there's nothing else to say i don't have we even mentioned um, yeah like juan pedro lopez took the the jersey on etna by being in the breakaway and also leonard camino won that stage we should give him some some credit you know uh and there really there's been like nothing uh other than people losing lots of time like dumoulin but the, the, the sort of the the first week and and uh, we're actually now getting past the first week as we go into tomorrow uh, there really hasn't been as much GC action as I would have expected, considering the number of hills, because there are plenty of hills, but just, yeah, not a whole lot of uh, back and forth. Kavna looks really good in general. Um, I think after, so maybe he's, maybe he wants to stay up there in GC. I don't know. He's, he, he's never really, he hasn't been pegged as that type of rider in the past, but he's, he's obviously sitting right there right now. And, I think it'll it depend on how he does on Blockhouse. If if he loses contact on Blockhouse, I could see him just pulling the plug and losing eight minutes and then going and trying to win stages, right? But I think if he's close, if he's within a minute, I think he could keep fighting for a little while. And, and I think he would like a pink jersey, basically. Uh, yeah, he's, he's been very, very, very impressive to me so far. That is a fork. A boar hands grow a fork. There Isn't you there? go. We've got the Bookman, <laughs> Kelderman, Hindley. Hindley? Uh, and yeah, sure. Kimna. I like Hindley. I really want him to do well, but I, he's just been a bit of a ghost so far this race. I want all of them to do. I, I'm like, now that you've brought it up, I want the fork to to thrive because uh, I didn't really, I didn't really realize that. And now you say that, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. Let's let's get it. Uh, the Bora fork. It should. We should point out that Blockhouse climb does go to uh, 1665 meters. So for those of us who live in Colorado, that's just you know a ride on the flats, but it is a mile above sea level, uh, which I think could have some small impact. It's not like a, uh, you know, 3000 meter climb or anything like that, but it's not nothing. Do we think, do we think a G, a, a breakaway goes on the blockhouse stage and, and we, we see an Etna situation or is this going to be one of the GC guys are like, now nah, we want this one. I, 
I feel like we have seen more and more breakaways winning mountain stages in the last few years. And now I'm pretty hesitant to predict GC winners on any of them. Uh, it's just such a, it's become such a thing. Uh, that said, just the way the stage works, I, I, I do think this is a, a better GC kind of day than, than other mountain stages. Um, I, I think it's going to have opportunities for the Peloton to kind of claw back time on the break. Uh, so we're, wouldn't be surprised in the slightest, but I don't think it's the best breakaway day in the race, put it that way. Do you think that Trek is confident enough in, in Lopez to hold it together a little bit? Well, I think they'll try. So that, that, that would be that would be something in favor of a GC day. Because what right? do they have if, to if lose, they hold really? It, you know? Yeah, I mean, they, they might as well give it a go, which means they'll keep it down to, you know, sub five minutes kind of thing. And at that point, you know, if you start Blockhouse with a three-minute lead on Carapaz, you're probably not staying away, I would think. If someone like Pogacar... Or just if Pogacar was at this race, then I would say he's going to win the race, win the stage, no, no question, and that that would technically be a GCD, I guess. Although it would be a rampage like at the Tour last year. But I, I don't, I, my feelings about the GC at this race is they're all slightly tentative still, and I think they still will be. And I think if there's any action, it won't be until that second step um, of the blockhouse. I do, I wonder if a a breakaway goes in that quite challenging up and down first phase of the stage um i yeah i i i'm leaning towards a breakaway on sunday with uh, time I'll, taken I'll, in and out i'll be a little bit different and then i'll say that uh we're going to see the Enios train return uh and they're going to set up carapaz for to to, to set the foundations for his gc one i think lopez i wouldn't be surprised to see him trying to get in the break that day even though he's in the pink jersey it's you know highly abnormal but i think really that's his best chance of of defending on on the blockhouse stage i'm really looking forward to seeing what kind of form simon yates is in uh i i would not be surprised if he uh really tried to kind of flex and put put in a long-range attack uh he which he has done before uh obviously there was a giro in which he flexed quite a bit before uh completely collapsing i don't i don't like i don't like the term flex when it comes to climbers i just don't uh, um, he's uh what yeah what, what what's what's a good i mean just imagine him flexing i mean yeah it's probably not yeah. super impressive yeah but not like arno <laughs> demar okay sure he can do it right but maybe not maybe not simon yates okay well i think simon yates is going to emphatically attack uh or at least hope that he will uh in a way that shows others that he is in good form flex is just so easier to say than that uh i think i think that that could happen and i would like to see it and i would love to see carpass match that um but but Simon Yates does have a history of kind of you know showing showing his strength a little bit and and uh, making it known what kind of form he's in whether or not he can hold it through 3 weeks has sometimes been a question mark although he is a grand tour winner so uh it's not like he's it's not like that's a, uh, something that's always holding him back. Um, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, he does have a history of that. He does also have a history of sitting on the back of the peloton and making people very nervous, which I was <laughs> a bit today. I'd really like to see him, you know, put those demons to bed. From Although that was a great, you know, three stage wins is very good for a grand tour. Well, I do think that, I mean, the fact that he went on that year to win the Vuelta, I think was a big deal. And yes, we now look back on the Giro and kind of say, oh, yeah, I remember that Giro. Where... But he is a grand tour winner. He's done it before. Uh, he's been on the podium again at the Giro. Uh, he's been on the podium at the Giro since then. So I think I'm a little bit less concerned about the whole, you know, will he collapse after three weeks than I, w- than I otherwise would have been immediately after that race. If he wins on Blockhouse, are we going to get a, a return of the shitting myself quote from a couple of years ago? That, that was, was one of my favorites. That was an A-plus quote. That was an A-plus quote. So this is 2019 uh, and is the, is the the Giro press conference ahead of the race. And he just sat there and really unequivocally said that if he was in his rival's shoes, he would be, quote, shitting himself, <laughs> meaning that he was going to win the bike race. And then he uh, didn't at, at all. At all. <laughs> so, uh, but, I, you know, I appreciated the I appreciated the bluster. I liked it. I really li- I liked the fact that he that he at least tried that. Uh, and then a couple days later, he said, maybe I should be the one shitting myself. So. You know, more shitting myself quotes from Mr. Yates, please. The year before he said that, didn't somebody who did that win the bike race? Or was it two years before? Dumoulin, two, two years, years before. before. Yeah, Dumoulin. Got it. So maybe it was a positive thing. 
Maybe it was actually all, all of... <laughs> yeah, maybe he was saying that he actually wasn't in great form, that other people were going to win the race, because that's how you win the race. Because Giro. they were going to shit themselves, yeah. just like Dumoulin. We should probably... Yeah. We need an output an explicit yeah. rating between the between the Luke Rowe comment and the, <laughs> the shitting myself quotes. We apologize if you're listening with children. Uh, let's move on. Okay, so we got two great stages coming up this weekend. Like I said, we'll be back on Monday with another sort of normal week weekly episode. Talk all about all about those. Before we wrap up for today, though, uh, the other sort of big news at the last couple of days is that the shark, the squalo. Vincenzo Nibali is retiring at the end of this year. And this is a, it's a sad moment. It's, it's a, I think, you know, I was gonna say changing of the guard, but the guard's been changed. Let's be honest. Uh, But he's just a, he's always been a very dynamic, exciting, interesting racer. I mean, I think his, his Tour de France victory largely on the back of a, of amazing ride over wet cobblestones, wet Roubaix cobblestones, sort of sticks in my mind in 2014. Um, it's just like a, a, the epitome of, of, of who he was as a bike racer, which is just never afraid to go after it. You know, known as one of the greatest descenders in the sport, just a very, a very classy bike rider. And we're going to be losing him in the pro peloton for next year. I really appreciate the way that he sort of, I mean, well, first of all, the career longevity was, was really impressive. I mean, he, he was around, he was winning bike races, you know, in the, in the, 2000s decade and uh continued to win bike races including grand tour stages uh up until quite recently he also sort of reinvented himself a little bit as a as a one-day racer kind of in the latter half of his career there was a i think i think he had one single uh one-day victory uh at the world tour level on his palmares for the first like 15 years of his career something like that not 15 10 years of his career uh, he won the GP West France early on in his career. And then for like the next decade. So not a big one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's a pro tour race, but not the biggest one. Uh, and then for the next decade, he was a grand tour guy. And then it's just like, he just decided, all right, you know what? I'm going to go win some classics. Uh, and he ended his career or he will end his career, uh, as a two time, I guess at least, I mean, there's, it's still on the calendar. Maybe he'll win it again, but at least a two time winner of Il Lombardia, a winner of Milan San Remo, uh, and yeah, he, he proved that, you know, he's actually got quite the chops in the one day races as well. Uh, good for him. Yeah. And he announced this in, uh, in Messina, which is his hometown. It's where he grew up, where he started racing. Um, which is a, a special moment. Cause obviously the Giro went through Messina in Sicily, uh, last week. And yeah, just a cool, just a cool thing, a cool, a cool moment for him to, uh, to have, to make that announcement. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm bummed about that a little bit. He, he also, to sort of like back off your, your point here, Dane, is that, I mean, let's be honest. He, he, he came through two very different eras of professional cycling. Uh, and I think that that could potentially be related to, to the things that you're talking about, sort of the, the swap in what he, the way that he was racing and what he was doing. Um, you know, he's a rider who never had any, any doping stuff really stick to him over the over the last two decades which is also kind of impressive uh take impressive however you want but nonetheless you know like like you said a rider who remade himself as the sport changed and as he changed and as he got older and as he sort of needed new challenges and things like that so i thought i thought that was well just worth a mention really the thing that always sticks out in my mind when we mention nibali is the descent in the Giro a few years back i think it was 2016 when he bunny hopped the water just right before the hairpin on the descent. And yeah, it's, you know, that just was everything he was all about. Daredevil descending, but phenomenal bike handling. Uh, and just kind of funny that he's afraid of water, given that his nickname is the shark. <laughs> 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 the shark of Messina. Astana are going to really miss him. Um, especially with yeah. no Lopez and a fading breed of, well, Astana riders. I still think that Nibali could come back and grab a stage at some point. This Giro, uh, never count him out, and he'll be obviously super motivated. This is last year at Italia; it's its home race. Wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if if we see him make his way up the road at some point here. Anyway, what's what's the Italian equivalent of chapeau? Bravo, 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 Nibali! Fantastic career. 
We're sorry to see you go, but there's still most of a season. Just to be clear, he's not, he's, he's not climbing off right now. He's going to finish up this entire season. Uh, so we'll be talking about him again, I am sure, throughout the rest of 2022. And with that, it's time for us to wrap up today. We'll be back on Monday to talk through Blockhouse. Fingers crossed, everybody cross everything that the GC Riders decide to do something on Sunday. Uh... I was disappointed in them today. Today was an opportunity, an opportunity lost. So hopefully they'll go for it on Sunday and hopefully they're just saving their legs for something crazy. All right. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.